Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode four of our podcast, Raya Affairs. If you have been following us for a while now, you'll know that we are your co-hosts, Marina and Serene. We're both international relations uh, students interning at Raya and working alongside a great team to produce content for Raya on this new platform. We wanted to give a shout out to our team of Ariel and Usama as well, and all our writers who have joined our podcast as it has already reached 200 plus downloads. If you're not familiar with Raya Affairs and this is your first time listening to the podcast, welcome. Serene is going to go ahead and tell you what Raya is all about. Hi everyone and welcome to Raya Affairs. So to give you all a brief overview, Raya is an international think tank led by young professionals that translates the abstract world of international affairs by simplifying rather than generalizing. Raya is a place where you come to learn about the stories and worries of political leaders, the behind the scenes of decision makers, and how politics impacts and changes your life. This is Raya Affairs, filling you in wherever you are. And again, uh, expressed opinions in this episode are welcome, even though they are not a direct reflection of Raya. Raya specializes in unbiased writing and analysis. Last week, we had a very in-depth discussion and analysis on Saudi Arabia's leader, Mohammed bin Salman, with Raya writer Linda Steiner. We analyzed MBS's changing stance of his country's intervention in Yemen, as the leader has agreed to a ceasefire. And in this discussion, we also took a look at the leader's relationship with MBZ of the United Arab Emirates and Biden, as well as his regional interests when it comes to the Iranian-backed Houthi group. So if you haven't listened to that episode yet, make sure to check it out because I guarantee you, you will learn something new about the Yemen war, ongoing now for seven years. What's more is much of last week's discussions are related to what we will be discussing today, such as leaders on the rise using conflict escalation to their advantage, including the use of commodities such as oil and gas. So to kick off this episode, we will be discussing a prominent leader, Poland's Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki. In late May, the European Union Commission decided to ban Russian imports. This decision was a pivotal and very important one for Prime Minister Morawiecki, as it allowed for Poland to step up in the Eastern Bloc and to allow for the bloc's continued leadership against Russia. Raya writer Laura Revenga-Rodriguez will join us to discuss these important changes in Polish leadership and what it means for the rest of the European Bloc. Marina, on to you. All right, so hi, Laura, and welcome to the podcast. Welcome to Raya Affairs. Um, why don't you give us a bit of an introduction of who you are, where you're from, what you do, why did you choose to join Raya, and anything else that you find interesting that you would like our listeners uh, to know about you. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for the invitation. It's a great pleasure to be here. My name is Laura, or as my friends call me, Lau, and I'm a research analysis intern from Spain. I graduated from Universidad Antonio de Nebrija, where I also did my Erasmus studies at Sorbonne University. Then I completed my master's and I'm currently studying an entrepreneurship program. A curiosity about me is that I'm a polyglot. I speak six languages fluently, being Galician, Spanish, English, French, Italian, and Portuguese, and a bit of German. I chose Raya in order to expand my knowledge knowledge and joy of international relations and to materialize this interest into content for everyone as we will do during this episode. Thank you, Laura. That's very impressive. Um, and now we have this next question that we like to ask every time because it gives our listeners a sense of who you are. 
Trust me, we've had some very genuinely interesting answers, I would say. So, Laura, what leader, dead or alive, who has impacted the world, would you like to have a five-minute conversation with if you could? And again, since you know over six languages, uh, take your pick. That's a great and tough question to answer. There's a plethora of interesting leaders, but I would definitely choose Lech Walesa, for former Polish prime minister. Walesa was has been one of the most notorious pol Polish di dissidents co as a co-founder and head of the Solidarity, which was the largest Polish labor union against Soviet rule. He lost several, during Soviet uh, Poland, he lost several of his jobs and was repeatedly arrested and being kept under surveillance until 1991. Walesa won the Nobel Peace Prize in the 1980s and he was the first elected president of Poland after the fall of the USSR. Walesa has been one of the leaders of modern Poland and he has drastically modernized the Polish economy. This is an achievement given that many post-Soviet countries such as Ukraine have not been able to make an effective transition of their national economies. Lech Walesa is a notable leader indeed. Thank you so much for that answer, Laura. And I think that's a great segue um, from one Polish leader to another. That's the focus of our episode today. So to start off, uh, could you give us an overview of who is Poland's prime minister and what are some of his achievements economically, politically and socially inside of Poland? In other words, what is Morawiecki known for? Mateusz Morawiecki has been the Polish prime minister since December 2017. Before depending on the economic and internal politics, it's important to highlight some key interesting biographical data. Morawiecki's political activists resulted in his arrest by communist security officers, and after Poland's independence in 1991 and during the early 2000s, he kept his political independence and Morawiecki served as the deputy director of the Accession Negotiation Department in the Committee for European Integration in 1998. It's important to highlight that Poland became a full EU member in 2004. This links to the economic part. Morawiecki has kept a balance between economic liberalism and expanding social welfare programs. In 2016, he was appointed as the Polish finance minister, and during his leadership, the Polish economy thrived, growing at an annual rate of 4%. A year later, in 2017, he became the Polish prime minister. And for instance, in 2020, Polish economy withstanded the economic negative impact of COVID-19 better than many other European countries. Link Going through the political and society aspects, Morawiecki has been leaning towards more conservative approaches. These policies have led to a rift between Warsaw and Brussels. One recent notorious example was last year, 2021. In early 2021, Polish Consti Poland's Constitutional Tribunal ruled that key articles of some of EU's primary treaties were incompatible with Polish law in effect rejecting the principle that EU law has primacy over national legislation in certain areas. In May 2021, this resulted in a fine by the EU Court of Justice. Laura, thank you so much for providing a comprehensive overview of Morawiecki's achievements in the economical, political, as well as social field. 
Now, just to dive a bit deeper into who Morawiecki is, can you tell us a bit about what his foreign policy has been like in leading Poland? Uh, would you say it's consistent with his domestic vision and policies? Poland's the foreign policy under Morawiecki has been consistent with his domestic vision and policies. According to Polish Foreign Minister, Polish foreign policy strategy 2017-2021, maintaining a fruitful and lasting cooperation with local, regional and global partners is the cornerstone of Warsaw's security and defense strategy. Regarding the EU, Poland understands that countering modern security issues, especially unconventional and hybrid ones, such as immigration, requires cooperation between EU member states. Therefore, Warsaw intends to put pressure on other EU member states while keeping its differences during hard times. Within the EU, Morawiecki has managed to keep Visegrad, which is a political alliance between Hungary, Czech Republic, Slovakia and Poland, united despite, despite its divergences regarding Russian energy. Within the three C initiatives, a Polish-led initiative has allowed Morawiecki to gain a lot of importance, making Poland a regional and economic hub. Both Poland and the US have bolstered their diplomatic ties as they share the same interests concerning Russia. Washington has gradually moved to provide Warsaw with advanced military equipment. During NATO's Madrid summit in, in this late June 2022, Russia has been considered for the first time in history as NATO's biggest threat. Thus, NATO will enforce the security in the eastern flank which will bolster and secure Poland's security and borders. Thank you, Laura, for that deep background into Morawiecki and his policies. Your article, it focuses on Morawiecki's diplomatic victories as the relations uh, between the EU and Russia tense up due to the war in Ukraine. So could you explain how exactly the Russo-Ukrainian war has affected Morawiecki's foreign policy? It's important to remark that in 2020-2021, Poland and Russia have had a standoff. Belarus, supported by Russia and the EU, found themselves in an internal dispute on the Belarus-Poland border. Immigration flows pushed by means were being used to place pressure on the border between Belarus and Poland. During this ongoing tension, Brussels left aside its differences with Poland and supported the country. Also, before the outbreak of the current war in Ukraine, towns across Poland have been setting up accommodations to prepare for the up up to 1 million Ukrainian refugees who could arrive if Russian forces could approach Poland's shores. As such, this war has changed, changed Poland's views mostly for the EU and US as a key ally. Consequently, Poland has become a key ally providing Kiev vital, vital support, ammunition, artillery, among other weaponry. Morawiecki has also leveraged NATO's concerns regarding the Baltic states, most precisely the Suwalki Corridor. As a quick note, the Suwalki Corridor is a narrow border that connects Poland with the three Baltic states and cuts Russia's Kaliningrad exclave from Russian allied territory, Belarus. With the EU, Poland has, take, has taken a step back on divisive internal quarrels within the EU. For instance, Polish President Duda has introduced legislation getting rid of controversial judiciary reforms. 
This shift can be described as both actors would like to enforce a prosperous Ukraine free from free of Russian interventionist safeguarding economic and social stability for both Brussels and Warsaw. And Laura, as a follow-up, what role has the leader of Poland taken on in the region amidst this war in Ukraine? Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, has sent a draft law to Parliament, to the Ukrainian Parliament, granting Polish citizens a special status in Ukraine. I believe this news published almost a week ago provides a perfect idea of Morawiecki's leadership within the Ukrainian war. Since the Ukrainian crisis, Morawiecki has left aside his differences with other EU member states and convinced his European counterparts to adopt a harsher tone against Russia and to speed up EU's in the, the EU's independence from Russian oil. As previously stated by Sarin, since the beginning of May 2022, Warsaw has wanted the EU to shorten its transition period from a partial ban to a complete ban on imports of Russian crude oil. Perfect, Laura. I just want to go back to what you mentioned briefly here on the podcast, but that you also mentioned in your article that is part of his foreign policy, and that's Morawiecki's Three Seas Initiative. Could you discuss what this initiative entails, the states again that are involved? I know you mentioned before, but if you could just repeat. And most importantly, I guess, what this means, this initiative for Morawiecki's regional role. The Three Seas Initiative is a geopolitical forum that comprises 12 EU member state, states stretching from the Baltic until the Adriatic and Black Sea. This idea traces back to the 1920s when Polish leader Pidulski tried to form a federation of states called Intermarium to gain geopolitical leverage. However, this idea reshaped in 2016 during a summit in Dubrovnik, Croatia. Over time, this forum has gained more political clout within and outside of the EU. For instance, in last year, 2021, former Japanese Prime Minister Suga declared that Tokyo is intended in participating in a project relating to this forum. This initiative is key for Morawiecki for two core, two core reasons. First of all, this forum allows Poland to coordinate 12 EU member states towards a common voice, mostly regarding Russia. Thus, this means a greater role for Morawiecki in EU regional politics. Secondly, Warsaw is by far the biggest and most important member state within the Three Seas Initiative. This forum enables it to become an economic and financial hub for other, other great powers between the US, China, Turkey and Germany. Perfect. So now that we've covered the Three Seas Initiatives, which, uh, Laura, as you mentioned, is a geopolitical forum that ultimately means a greater role for Morawiecki in EU regional politics. I think it would be also interesting to cover the Polish economy and how the Polish economy affects Morawiecki's actions outside of the realm of the EU. So uh, we know that the Polish economy is very much dependent on Russia in terms of commodities. And I quote from your article, Laura, Poland gets 46% of its gas, 64% of its oil, and 15% of its coal from Russia. So how exactly does the Prime Minister intend to solve this issue given Gazprom's cut of Polish supply? Warsaw has been extremely cautious that Moscow could use its energy resources as a geopolitical weapon. In 2006, Russia shut down all 
all its oil exports to a refinery in Lithuania after an oil spill on the Druzhba pipeline due to Viktor Yushchenko's victory in 2004. In retaliation, in 2009, Gazprom reduced its shipments by 50, by 50% of its gas supplies to Ukraine, which affected most of Eastern European countries in, in winter. Therefore, in, since 2017, Morawiecki has turned to Saudi Arabia and even more, even more so to Norway with regards to the Baltic pipeline, as, and lately to the US to diversify its energy routes and suppliers. This early move towards gas has avoided that 2000, 2022's Gazprom cut could significantly harm Poland, at the same time making Poland an energy transit area. Thanks for elaborating on that, Laura. And uh, as a follow-up, some of our listeners might not know about the Baltic Pipeline. So uh, to give them some context, could you go over why it was created and what it's intended for? The Baltic Pipeline is an underground gas pipeline project that intends to supply gas from, Nor from the Norwegian gas system in the North Sea to Poland via Denmark. When it's completely When it's completed, this pipeline will have the ability to replace close to 60% of Polish gas imports coming from Russia's Jamal pipeline, a key, a key pipeline that connects Russia to Germany. This project would effect, effectively reduce Poland's and to a certain extent Denmark's dependence on Russian gas, which would secure their economies and diplomacy in case of any standoff with Moscow. Additionally, this project would help to reduce Russia's overall share of the EU's gas market, which is currently around 40% and thus reduce Moscow's geopolitical clout within the EU. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for elaborating on that. Uh, now, just to go back to the topic of commodities, the other side of the coin here, it seems, um, in Gazprom cutting Polish supply are the consequences for Gazprom, Putin, as well as the Russian state, right? So what are some of the consequences uh, that you've observed in your process of research and analysis? It seems that trends of isolation can be observed on both sides. We can witness here two great trends, a growing Russian isolation in the Baltic regions and most specifically a greater power competition amongst the US, EU, NATO and Russia. This rivalry amongst great powers have become bitter in order to influence Central European states, mostly the Baltic re region, with a special interest to the Suwalki Corridor that could undermine or strengthen Russia's pres regional presence in the Baltic, in the Baltic Sea and thus in Central Europe. All right, Laura, I want to move on and discuss a bit about how Russia's invasion of Ukraine and now these, this consequent weakened presence of Russia in the Baltic region have helped develop the relationship we observe between the EU and Poland. And specifically, you quote in your article that the war has turned Poland from a controversial partner within the EU to a reliable partner and bridge between the bloc and the rest of Eastern Europe. So can you really comment on how this change in relations came to be, essentially what has made Poland a controversial to a reliable partner for the EU? Since 2015, Warsaw and Budapest have been in the storm for Brussels. For instance, in that year, alongside with Hungary, Morawiecki overcame the obstacles set by the EU to evade mandatory refugee quotas. Two years 
Two years later, in 2017, Morawiecki's cabinet approved the creation of a disciplinary chamber of the Supreme Court, which would have allowed Morawiecki to gain grip on the, on the Polish judiciary branch. In last year, in 2021, this, has, this confrontation has heightened and heated up between Brussels and Warsaw to the level that many media have written about a potential polexit. This uh, this dispute this is this sparked when the Polish Constitutional Tribunal ruled that key articles of one of the EU's primary treaties were incompatible with Polish law, in effect rejecting the principle that EU law has prim prim primacy over national legislation in certain judicial areas. In late 2021, the EU Court of Justice fined Poland with 1 million euros per day over judiciary, these judiciary reforms. These moves made Poland a controversial member within the EU until the 24th of February 2022. Since February 2022, Morawiecki has been pragmatic enough to live outside any standoff with Brussels. He has been a pro proponent of showing solidarity towards Brussels' stance on Russia and thus reinforcing, reinforcing EU's stance towards Ukraine. Warsaw has, has wanted that the EU has wanted the EU to shorten its transition period from a partial ban to a complete ban on imports of Russian crude oil. In late May, the European Council agreed in principle to ban all imports of Russian oil by sea in its six runs of Ukraine-related sanctions. Thanks, Laura. That was a great description of the shift we really see between Morawiecki and the EU. And as a follow-up, I wanted to draw some parallels between Poland and Hungary, because both have expressed clear differences when it comes to the EU's requirements of their national institutions, in the judicial realm especially of their respective countries. How, however, has Morawiecki deferred in his response to the EU as compared to Hungary and Orban? And what are his intentions behind this, rather than being at odds with the bloc? Both Hungary and Poland have been the enfant terrible for Brussels as they have challenged EU authorities' plans in 2015 with the, with the refugee quotas. Additionally, both Warsaw and Budapest have advanced towards these judiciary reforms we've mentioned previously. And the potential approval of the creation of the disciplinary chamber has allowed Morawiecki could have allowed Morawiecki to gain grip on the judiciary branch and put him at odds with the EU. Contrary to Viktor Orban, which I would like to make a, a stop, I highly recommend reading what Michael's and Ariel's articles have made regarding Viktor Orban. Morawiecki considers it's important to keep a single voice in the EU to keep a strong diplomatic confrontation against Russia and thus bolstering Polish regional leadership. In the ongoing crisis, he has taken the lead within the European Union against Russia and has become a bridge between the Visegrad group, the Baltic region and the rest of the EU. Plus, he led the voice within the EU to reduce Brussels' dependency on Russian energy, which will make Warsaw a regional energy hub. Perfect. Well, thank you for highlighting Morawiecki's deferred response um, within the realm of the EU. And just to add on, uh, I was reading yesterday that the Polish and Ukrainian defense ministers met to coordinate new weapon shipments to Ukraine. 
Now, this is one of the many meetings between the two states where Poland has expressed uh, readiness in supporting Ukraine, whether it be through weapon shipments or joint custom control to facilitate uh, Ukrainian refugees. So Poland has also been vocal about Ukraine's membership into the EU, in fact, supporting the fast track for it and praising the European Commission's proposal regarding Ukraine's EU membership. I guess my question here, Laura, is by lending support to Ukraine, what does Poland achieve? Or more recently, what are they trying to actively achieve? And what are some of the goals we would find upon analysis? Here we find a key uh, key and not so mentioned goal to influence and change the EU leadership, form an Eastern European majority that could could become more powerful than the traditional European Franco-German axis. It's important to highlight that both historically France and Germany have had somewhat amicable relations with Moscow, which Poland and other EU, EU members never had this never had. This this could shift EU EU's policy and diplomacy regarding Russia, especially on energy issues. Okay, so before we go into our top three takeaways, I think that it's very vital in our analysis to tie back into the introduction of who Prime Minister Morawiecki is and what his motivations are as he supports this sixth round of EU sanctions against Russian oil imports. It seems that supporting the sanctions is just one of these many attitudes that have helped the leader gain importance in the region and at home. And throughout this podcast, we have really proceeded to discuss the proactive actions he's taken in his domestic and international leadership since. So Laura, I guess the question here is, do you observe Morawiecki to be a pragmatic leader? You know, to me, a pragmatic person is someone who really bases their decisions on the reality of a current situation. But to you, what does make if so, Morawiecki pragmatic. Is it that he's making the best out of the current regional situation because he can? Is it his leadership style? Is he well-intended according to the polls? Or is it nothing of the sort? And feel free to discuss as much as you want. That's an interesting question. I consider Morawiecki to be a pragmatic leader, and I would like to provide two clear examples. Firstly, as we touch upon on question four, since 2017, Morawiecki has turned to Saudi Arabia and even more to Norway with regards to the Baltic pipeline, as we've discussed before, and lately to the U.S. to diversify and secure Polish ener energy routes and suppliers. To avoid that any Russian disruption on gas or other natural resources could severely harm Poland. Additionally, Washington has gradually moved to provide Warsaw with advanced military equipment, U.S. President Joe Biden is not discarding a permanent deployment of at least one U.S. armored brigade in Poland. It's important to remark that late in late June, during NATO's Madrid summit within this newest strategic concept, for the first time in history, Russia has been considered as NATO's biggest threat. Thus, Poland and Romania will be accredited to essential pillars of NATO in Eastern Europe. Thus, this aid will be a cornerstone to avoid any further tension and escalation beyond Ukraine's borders. As an extra point, Morawiecki has been able to keep the standoff with Brussels during this current war in Ukraine as a way to bolster political alliances within the EU to condemn Russia and seeking to downgrade 
Moscow's geopolitical clout and leadership within the EU's energy market. But will this effort be enough to counter Russia? Will the standoff between Warsaw and Brussels emerge soon? Great questions, Laura. And I think we'll see how they pan out very soon in real life. So everyone stay tuned. And with that, it seems that we've come to the end of our discussion. But just before moving on to our Q&A section, we wanted to know what you believe are the three top takeaways our listeners should bear in mind, more specifically when it comes to your process of research and analysis, Laura. We believe that, especially given the topic of discussion, the analysis process is increasingly relevant as it paints a better picture of the interests of the public, as well as your perspective as a writer. According to a recent Pew and Research study, a median of only 52% across 38 nations polled that says their news media in their country do a good job of reporting on political issues fairly. Therefore, anything you read or hear involves a flow of ideas and leads to a particular interest. For instance, here in Spain, most new outlets about Poland tend to be negative or politically biased. I consider the three most important takeaways on research analysis being review the literature, analyze clearly the data, establish a plan and a structure, which are the main ideas or questions you would like to answer, and be straight to the point. So getting in mind these three three takeaways is hardcore to understand the ongoing changing international relations scenario, and thus helps us to understand why leaders take certain decisions. All right, so Laura, it's time for our Q&A, which is a little segment in which we discuss questions that are sent in by our viewers in anticipation of our podcast, and they're always directed to you. So the first question is from Gabriela, who's in Madrid, and she asks, how did the Polish prime minister act during COVID-19? Thank you for the question, Gabriela. Contrary to other EU member, to other EU countries such as Spain, Warsaw avoided the worst COVID-19-related health ravages and avoided a severe blow to its economy. This policy of early and strict restrictions avoided the painful trade-off between health and economy. As a result, last year, Poland recovered its pre-COVID-19 macroeconomic data, making Warsaw one of the few EU members to reach its pre-crisis level by the end of 2021. Perfect. So next up, we have Sofia from the Canary Islands. And Sofia asks, to the best of your knowledge, do you know how Poland has handled the refugee influx from Ukraine? That's an insightful question. Before the invasion, Poland had been making preparations to house 1 million refugees. According to recent UN data, as of July 12, 2022, more than 1.2 million Ukrainian refugees have registered for temporary protection in Poland. The Ukrainian refugees make it to Poland. They are taken to their new temporary accommodations. This could be a hostel, dorm, and even stadiums. Additionally, permits and administrative tasks have been eased off to facilitate Ukrainians' refugees' integration, especially on the education field. I would also like to mention the immense solidarity shown by Polish citizens towards Ukrainian refugees. 
All right. Thanks, Laura, for those answers to the audience questions. And as the podcast comes to an end, I just wanted to say on behalf of us hosts how impressed we are with you and how outgoing you've been since the very beginning of this entire process for this episode. Laura was actually the one who reached out to us to be featured and to bring this topic to our platform. And in this episode, we've really seen that from her. We've had a very deep understanding into who Polish Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki is, from his political career to domestic policies to foreign actions and aspirations. And he has supported Ukraine in the current war. And with that, his view as a leader of the region has really changed for both EU and the US. He has become a key ally, one who seeks to unify the Visegrad member states in their condemnation of Russian aggression. But also, Laura has illustrated how he's become a key ally for his own country. Morawiecki has focused his energies into developing alternatives for his own country's source of oil and coal, turning to other member states early on and avoiding much of the harm that Gazprom's cut of supply has caused. And also for the region, he's focused a lot of his energies into developing alternatives for infrastructure. Lastly, we also managed to evaluate Morawiecki as he steps up for the European Union and leaves aside any standoff he has with Brussels, advancing again this pragmatic leadership style that he has. And this whole episode has really led up to that essential question that Laura helps us answer. What makes a leader pragmatic and is Mateusz Morawiecki an example? Once again, we just wanted to really thank Laura for being here and for coming on to share her expertise at Raya Affairs. Thank you, Laura. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for this episode and this great talk. It has been an immense pleasure to talk about this topic today. Well, thank you so much for being part of this incredibly interesting topic of discussion today, Laura. It's been a pleasure. And for those of you who have enjoyed our discussion but would want to read for yourselves, make sure to check out Laura's article under the link in the podcast description or at rayagroup.org. And also make sure to follow us on Instagram, raya.now, for the latest updates. Finally, it was a pleasure hosting this talk today. We're your co-hosts, Sarin and Marina. Goodbye from us and thanks for tuning in. Have a great day in your sphere of influence.